Well, good evening, everybody. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics, and I'm very pleased to be able to introduce tonight George Mombio. Um, George has done really quite a few things. Um, he, he started after university working for the BBC, I believe in the Natural History Unit and also for the World Service, and then he engaged in a kind of activist journalism in a number of parts of the world. In, in West Papua, near where I come from in Australia, people don't hear very much about that, but they ought to, and, and George made it possible for people here to hear. Also in Brazil, he's uh, done work in uh, East Africa, and then he was an environmental campaigner back here in Britain. But I think uh, most of you probably know um, of George's work from his regular column in The Guardian, which I think may have been for almost 20 years now. Is that possible? Um, yep. Which is, is quite an achievement. Um, you'll have known, if you've, if you've read his columns, that um, they're distinctive, I think, for the sort of trenchant arguments that he makes. They're both rhetorically effective, but also uh, attendant to evidence. And I, I think he's someone who allows the evidence to, to, to drive the argument to a certain extent, which is a very important quality. Um, to me, he, he reminds me of the great uh, 19th century American journalist activists, people like Henry Demarest Lloyd, who exposed the Standard Oil Company and its shenanigans. Um, and, and many of his um, articles and arguments in his articles have like with Henry Demarest Lloyd, found their way into books. And I won't list all of his books, but um, some of you may know The Captive State, The Age of Consent, books that have made some impression on public debate. He's also had visiting fellowships at various universities, uh, I think Oxford, Keele, I've got down here, Bristol, and I think you have honorary degrees from uh, um, St Andrews and Essex and a few other places. Well, um, in the last year, uh, George Monbiot has been touring Britain with an album that he wrote. Um, and I believe that that album has had some impact on what he's going to talk to us about today, his latest book, Out of the Wreckage. Um, the, the book you'll see is, is on sale afterwards, and um, you, you're very welcome, of course, to, to get it and um, come and speak to him. So um, George is going to speak for about 45 or 50 minutes and then we should have a good period of time for uh, questions and discussion. But before we start, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, George Monbiot. Thanks very much, Robin, and thank you everyone for coming. Is the mic on? Can you all hear me okay? Great. Good start. Thank you. Um, one of the questions I'm asked most often is, is why don't I despair? How do I, get up, how do I get out of bed every morning, given that my job basically consists of rolling in the excrement of humanity? <laughs> and, and I'm not just talking about my recent encounter with Piers Morgan. <laughs> um, and the truth is that sometimes I do. Um, I despaired most often, actually, during the Clinton and the Blair years, where... All the avenues seemed to be closed. There was simply no choice between big business and bombing on the one hand and, oh yes, big business and bombing on the other hand. <laughs> that you basically, there was almost complete political closure. It was amazing how little choice we had. These were, um, uh, the neoliberalism worked right across the so-called political spectrum. But the thing that keeps me going more than anything else is the recognition 
that political failure is at heart a failure of imagination. If you're staring at the brick wall and you're not seeing any cracks in it, it's because you're not looking at it right. There is always a crack to be found, but you just have to find the right way, the right angle from which to see it. And that belief, that sense that it is almost an imaginative process that will transform politics has been reinforced to me over the last couple of years by four observations, which might be completely unoriginal to you, but struck me as being new to me, which is all, all I can claim for them. And the first one is the most mundane of those observations, which is that it is not political leaders or political parties which seem to drive political change as much as grand political narratives. And um, uh, so, for example, um, when um, John Maynard Keynes's ideas took root, particularly in what we French call the Trente Glorieuse between 1945 and 1975, Keynesianism was accepted as common sense across the political spectrum. Richard Nixon is alleged to have said, we're all Keynesians now. The Republicans were Keynesians. The Conservatives were Keynesians. It didn't matter what their political heritage was, what their political name was, they basically accepted the grand narrative of Keynesian social democracy. And then when that ran into trouble in the late 1970s, and a new grand narrative, a virulent, powerful, radical grand narrative swept in and knocked it off the stage, neoliberalism, within a few years, everyone was a neoliberal. Labour was neoliberal. The, uh, the, the um, Democrats became neoliberal. Neoliberalism swept the world. It infected the minds of people right across the political spectrum. And we shouldn't be surprised, perhaps, that it is these grand narratives that change the world. We are creatures of narrative. We have an innate disposition to listen for a story that makes sense of where we stand and where we might be going. And when we try to find sense in this phenomenally complex world that confronts us, a world far too complex for any human brain properly to comprehend, what we look for is not a consistent set of facts and figures. We look for a consistent narrative. Does this narrative unfold as we would expect it to unfold? Do people within this narrative behave as we would expect them to behave? Does it go from beginning to middle to end? Does the hero triumph in the end? These are the sort of things we look for when we try to make sense of the world. And if someone says, oh, your story is wrong because the following facts and figures demonstrate that, it doesn't displace or dislodge that story. We just reject the facts and figures, as I have found to my cost in many years of confronting climate change denial. They have a powerful story. They say this nefarious group of um, so-called scientists have invented this thing in order to tax us, to squeeze the, the blood from our bodies these vampire scientists, and you say, well, actually, you're wrong, because this paper in Geophysical Research Letters says that. All you get is reactive denial. It's not going to get you anywhere. The only thing that can displace a story is a story. You cannot take away someone's story without giving them a new one. The second observation is more interesting, 
And this is that. Although Keynesian social democracy and neoliberalism are diametrically opposed to each other in ideological terms, in narrative terms, they have exactly the same structure. And this structure is what I call the restoration story, and it goes as follows. Disorder afflicts the land, caused by a powerful and nefarious group of people working against the general interests of humanity. The hero of the story, who might be one person, a group of people, an institution, confronts those nefarious forces, overthrows them, and restores order to the land. So the Keynesian social democratic story goes something along these lines. The economic elite, with their laissez-faire economics, stripped the wealth from the people of the land, um, concentrated it in their own hands, concentrated political power in their own hands, beggared millions in doing so, and caused an inevitable crisis in the form of the Great Depression. We, the enabling state, supported by the democratic will of the people, will restore order by confronting those forces with a powerful system of state engagement through robust public services, um, through, through high taxes to fund those services and redistribute and recirculate wealth back into the economy and a strong social safety net. And in doing so, we restore order to the land. The neoliberal story is the opposite. It is and the same. It is the mirror image. And it says, Disorder was brought to the land through the collectivizing tendencies of the overmighty state. And, it's, and in all its forms, this collectivizing state, be it so apparently mild as the British welfare state or the American New Deal, will lead inexorably to totalitarianism. This is why Friedrich Hayek called his book The Road to Serfdom. It will lead to Stalinism or to Nazism, because that is its destiny as a system which crushes individualism and freedom and opportunity for the benefit of the collective whole. But the hero of the story, the entrepreneur, will strike against these nefarious forces by opening space for the free market to flourish and in doing so will restore order to the land in the form of liberty and choice and opportunity. They are the same story in terms of narrative structure. And this then led to the third observation, which is that that narrative structure, the restoration story, is common to a great deal of successful political and, for that matter, religious revolutions. That you see it cropping up again and again and again. It's not just that our minds are attuned to narrative in general, they are prepared to hear particular narratives. There are particular narrative structures that they look for. And I believe there's some powerful evolutionary reasons for this, but uh, we don't have time to go into those right now. But, they, but, but we are tuned in, pre-tuned, to a particular way of hearing about how we are placed on Earth and how things might change from where we stand. And that leads almost inexorably to the fourth observation that the reason we are still stuck, despite its manifest failures and crises with neoliberalism, is that we have produced no compelling grand new political narrative 
with which to replace it. You cannot uh, expect someone to abandon their old story unless you give them a new one with which to replace it. Well, some of you might say, well, what's wrong with Keynesianism? Why can't we go back to that very powerful and very effective story in the general theory and there onwards, which was so successful, particularly following the Second World War, in many countries of the world? Well, I believe there are several reasons why we can't go back and why it's a mistake for many of those who oppose neoliberalism to do so through the prism of Keynesian social democracy. The first is that I believe one of the things that distinguishes political from religious stories is that the political stories have to change. You can't keep banging on with the same political story all the time and expect it to keep working. I'm not quite sure why this is. Um, I, it could be that we all like to some extent to reject the politics of our parents and we feel that going back to the politics that dominated in, in, in their um, generation is a regressive step of some kind. Um, it could be that we see those models becoming tired and the flaws become exposed because, of course, they're under constant assault and interrogation um, from, from those who oppose them and the flaws do become apparent. But in either case, there is, in effect, not much scope for going back if you are to galvanise and inspire people with a new political vision, well, with a political vision. The second problem is that the issues that it ran into, Keynesian social democracy, in the late 1970s have not gone away. There are some endogenous constraints to the model which manifested themselves at that time in cost-push inflation and stagflation and the other issues that we know about. And part of the reason for that, and it certainly meshes, it's not the only reason, is that it had come under sustained assault from global finance for decades because there were various people who were not well served by the model, who were extremely rich, internationally mobile people who basically wanted to break what they saw as the bonds of Keynesian social democracy and do what they wanted. They didn't want to be subject to its constraints anymore. And uh, partly through their work, capital controls were taken down, the fixed exchange rate system collapsed, uh, the international clearing union never got off the ground. So many essential concomitants of uh, Keynesian social democracy basically fell apart, leaving it highly exposed. We cannot expect that that global financial class has unlearnt the lessons that it used to hammer the model the first time round. But the biggest reason of all why I believe that it's not the model for our times, not the grand narrative for our times, is that the whole point of stimulus spending, the whole point, the whole uh, the core of the Keynesian economic model is that you sustain steady, if not spectacular, rates of economic growth. And in doing so, you run smack bang into the environmental crisis. The planet is not growing. If economies continue to grow and grow and grow, whether it's at 1% or 2% or 3% or 8%, it doesn't really matter, eventually they are going to break through its environmental limits. That is an inevitable um, uh, result of perpetual growth. And that's what we're seeing around the world today. The climate breakdown, the extinctions, the, 
destruction of wonderful places, the great rising tide of plastic, the um, water pollution, the air pollution, the soil erosion, uh, all these massive and often existential predicaments we now face are fundamentally being driven by economic growth, by the, the, the rising demand for, for goods and services um, and the interaction between a growth-based economy um, and um, the, the, the industries which do well as a result of that economy. There was an interesting paper published in Nature um, a couple of months ago um, which um, um, put the chances of staying within two degrees of global heating at just 5%. And its reasoning was clear. It said um, the, the annual rate of um, declining carbon intensity of the economy is 1.9%. Not enough, but it sounds pretty good. You know, we're, we're getting out of, um, of the carbon-based economy to the extent of 1.9% a year. The annual, this is the uh, sorry, anticipated rate across the century on the business-as-usual trajectory. The anticipated rate of economic growth globally is 1.8%. And that growth cancels out just about all the investment in renewables, in energy efficiency, in energy reduction, these massive efforts that people have made around the world is cancelled out by that growth. And so we carry on with current levels of um, greenhouse gas production um, and we carry on on the same trajectory of um, global heating and climate breakdown as a result. It is simply not a compatible model. We need a new story a story which might take us through the 21st century rather than back into the 20th century. And it has to be a restoration story, and it has to be an inspiring story, and it has to be a plausible story, and it has to be a story based on fact, not fiction, as much of neoliberalism turns out to have been. And this may sound like quite a tall order, but I believe there is a story waiting to be told. And it goes something like this. Over the past 20 years, there's been a remarkable convergence of findings in a number of different, different disciplines. In neuroscience, in psychology, in anthropology, in evolutionary biology. And they all point to something quite remarkable about human beings. That, in the words of a, an article in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, we are spectacularly unusual when compared to other animals. Now, there are various ways in which we're spectacularly unusual. Genocide, war, <laughs> enslavement, um, etc. No, but in this case, we are spectacularly unusual in respect of our degree of altruism. All of these findings point to this amazing thing that we are a just bizarrely altruistic species. I'm not talking about simple reciprocity. I'm talking about altruism which goes way beyond reciprocity, where basically we show kindness to um, um, other people who are unrelated to us, who we might never even meet, like sending money to some cause for people on the other side of the world. Um, we, we show kindness to people who have no possible capacity for repaying that kindness. You give money to a homeless person, you're not going to get money back from them. We engage on a daily basis in so many economically irrational acts of kindness that we've become completely inured to their existence to the extent that we do not 
see them. We, you know, some of you might even have made way for others queuing up to, 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 to come in today, allowed someone else to take that seat you had your beady eyes on. You might even have helped someone with their baggage or helped someone who's a bit frailer than you get into their seat. These are just the things we do. We hardly even notice we're doing them. If we saw any one of those things being done by another species, we would be absolutely staggered. <laughs> Why did they do this? And this paper goes on to note that the economist's model of homo economicus, this is what we're told by so many people that we are, self-maximizing man, and it always turns out to be a man, with sharp elbows, grabbing as much wealth and power as you possibly can in order to enhance your own status. It says the economist's model of homo economicus is a very good model of chimpanzees. <laughs> that is basically how they behave. And um, if a chimpanzee gets some interesting novel food stuff, it will sit on it, and e even if its own infants are begging for a bit of that, they'll probably get hit. If a stranger turns up looking for kindness, they're quite likely to have their arms ripped off. I'm not exaggerating, that is what happens. They get their arms ripped off. Um, it is, this is, this is what, you know, how we would behave if we were indeed homo economicus. Everyone got their arms? We have the right to bear arms. Um, yeah, oh, God, that was awful. Jesus, who said that? Where did that, where did that even come from? Right. But, but, you know, this is, um, uh, and, but human beings, it said, it's a terrible description of us. We're just not like that. But we fail to see this for all sorts of reasons. I mean, there's sort of deep-rooted reasons why we don't see it. One, because about 1% of the population don't share those values and, and they have a predisposition not to and they're people we call, people we call psychopaths. And as it happens, that description fits many of our political leaders. <laughs> and it, I mean, and, and indeed our corporate leaders, and I'm not making this up, there's one paper I read which um, 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 compared patients in Broadmoor Special Hospital who were diagnosed with um, psychopathic disorders to chief executives and they found a higher incidence of certain indications of psych uh, psychopathy among the chief executives than among the patients in the special hospital. And we see again and again uh, people coming to the top who have don't share our basic moral values, and we are disgusted by them. We are disgusted by Donald Trump. Even a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump are and were disgusted by him, but there are all sorts of complex reasons why they still voted for him. Um, but, and we see people like that and we generalise from them and we say, oh, that's what human beings are like. Um, we, uh, yeah, we're like that. Oh, God, aren't we awful? But we also have minds which are constantly on the lookout for danger. So we're, we're aware of when people behave badly because they might behave badly to us. And we're much less aware of when people behave well because we don't need to bother about that. <coughs> And that tendency is exacerbated by the news media because, as we know, if it bleeds, it leads. So we might look back, for instance, to the Charlie Hebdo killings and we say, God, you know, aren't human beings awful? Look what those two men did. Those two brutal, psychopathic thugs. Ah, oh, human beings were terrible people. We forget the fact that 3.7 million people came out onto the streets in solidarity with the victims and saying, this shall not pass, in France. And millions more around the world came out onto the streets as well, in solidarity with people whose language they didn't even speak. This is an extraordinary thing. 
This is a remarkable thing. And it's, it is not those two mass murderers who represent the human norm. It is those millions of people who came out against the two mass murderers who represent the human norm. But this tendency not to see has been greatly exacerbated by a group of powerful and nefarious forces. <laughs> which in this case are the neoliberal networks of economists and journalists and politicians and billionaires who fund the dark money network which promulgates so much of this through think tanks and, and through the press, uh, who are constantly inciting us to believe quite the opposite. Neoliberalism is, in essence, a neo-Hobbesian ideology. It says that we are engaged in a war of all against all, that the resting state of humankind is uh, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short, which describes some of the advocates of this view quite well. But, um, but uh, the... Uh, uh, and and they, they tell us that not only are those the innate and dominant characteristics of humankind and that selfishness and greed override all our other characteristics, and no one would deny, of course, that we have those characteristics of selfishness and greed, but what all the evidence shows is that they're far lower in our scale of values than our sense of benevolence and kindness towards others and empathy and altruism and the rest of it, but they say these are front and centre but they tell us that this is a good thing. That selfishness and greed and acquisitiveness and extreme individualism and extreme competition are good because what they do is they drive the creation of wealth. And some people, as a result of these traits, will become exceedingly wealthy and their wealth will then trickle down to enrich everyone, as we so well know. <laughs> and, and we have absorbed, internalised, and reproduced that narrative. Often with devastating consequences. There's a very good book by a Belgian psychoanalyst called Paul Verhage called What About Me? where he looks at the way in which our absorption of this, these beliefs in extreme individualism, in, in, in this sort of solitary um, life which we're induced to believe that we lead has led to a whole range of mental health disorders. Um, we internalise the belief that we are where we deserve to be. If you are rich, it's because you are enterprising and brilliant. Never mind that you inherited all your money, that you went to a very good school, that you have all the right social networks, etc., etc. And if you are poor, by contrast, it's because you deserve to be poor. You are the new undeserving. And this system ranks us according to apparent merit. And that merit is almost the opposite of... Uh, what we discern as merit in our relations with our friends and our families and our neighbours, where if we think that they're nice people, we think of them as having merit. In this case, if you're a really nasty person and you try to just grab as much as you can and walk over everybody else in order to get it, you have merit. That is basically at the heart of this neoliberal view. It's, it's profoundly unscientific. There is just simply no basis for this belief in the scientific literature, of course, as I say, we have selfishness and we have greed. Those are in us. But survey after survey, very interesting, clever experiments, um, even work with um, children as young as 14 months old suggests that this altruism and empathy and attempt to help each other, this extreme cooperation 
um, of our social minds is our dominant innate disposition. But the tragedy is that being induced to see ourselves in other ways and being pushed into a political and economic system which rewards what in all other walks of life we see as bad behaviour, we start to resemble that homo economicus creature that they tell us we are. Our good nature has been thwarted. The land has been thrown into disorder. So what do we do about this state? Well, we have to complete the story. And we complete the story by emerging as the heroes of the story. And we, the ordinary people of the land, are going to overthrow these nefarious forces and their devastating ideology and our internalization and reproduction of that ideology by creating a world in which our good nature can flourish. And we do so, I believe, by doing what human beings do incredibly well, and that is by rebuilding community. Now, not community as a sort of in the David Cameron sense <laughs> or the <laughs> Margaret Thatcher sense as this thing that we dump, ev we dump everything onto, but community is a living, viable, thrilling proposition. Community as the seat of much of our economic life, which then starts to make sense of community as, as something in which we then invest our time and, 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 and our souls to some extent. Um, and we do so through, I believe, a number of mechanisms. One is the amazing potential of what practitioners call participatory culture. There are some great examples around the world. Um, one of them is Todd Borden in, in Yorkshire, where um, they, uh, a few people set up this project they called Incredible Edible, a little bit of guerrilla gardening and a few um, forgotten corners of the town and um, growing vegetables and fruit um, and then beginning to trade that and then beginning to do other interesting things with it, like cooking with it and then beginning to sort of brand the town around it. And it has proliferated into so many projects which themselves have generated so many social enterprises that it is now widely believed to have turned the fortunes of the town around, greatly to have reduced the unemployment rate, to have raised incomes, to make it a highly desirable place to visit. It's done a whole lot of things which the initiators could not possibly have envisaged. And what's happened in this case is that the participatory culture has coalesced into what a very interesting study by Lambeth Borough Council calls thick networking. And thick networking is where you get this proliferation of project upon project until those projects start to lock in together and it becomes the new common sense. You start to see community as being at the centre of your life and those who are not engaged in community start to feel left out. It becomes the ordinary thing to do is to participate and the extraordinary thing to do is not to participate. And perhaps the supreme example of this is in Rotterdam where a project um, began just uh, six years ago now, I think, called, uh, the, uh, it's called the Reading Room, the Les um, which uh, was uh, 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 this old disused Turkish bath where people created a kind of library and a kind of cafe and a kind of sitting down place and it wasn't quite totally defined what it was which was probably a good thing 
and they began um, to spin off various little projects from this. They had people from 17 countries of origin from the ages of 10 to 81 um, um, uh, volunteering for this project. There are now 1,300 projects in Rotterdam which have been inspired or assisted by that thing that started. And it's now just proliferated into such a thick network of engagement that the council has now handed many of its functions over to community, not in the sort of big society sense, but in the way of <coughs> inviting, their, inviting community groups in to uh, reshape council policy and the distribution of funds in a kind of participatory budgeting uh, way, though not quite as formal as the Porto Alegre model yet. But uh, we've seen, again, that city, in this case a large city, uh, seeing its fortunes transformed by that model. But there's another thing which makes, takes this a step further down the line. This is that you start to attach to community the thing which gives community its economic focus, which is the commons. One of the great mistakes that we've made over the years is to discuss economics and politics as if it were um, a, a, a linear spectrum between state and market. How much should the state have? How much should the market have? Where do you position yourself on that spectrum between state and market? But there are actually four sectors of the economy. There's the state, there's the market, there's the household. It's perennially neglected. A wonderful um, book called um, Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner discusses the, the role of the household economy. And it turns out that while Adam Smith was slaving away on the wealth of nations, the invisible hands of his mother were doing all the work. And they remained entirely invisible. You know, at no point was this tremendous amount of free labour that she had provided to him acknowledged and recognised or even seen as part of the economy. And yet without that household, there's no economy at all. You know, he would have starved to death. The wealth of nations would not have been written. And as a result of our lack of recognition of the household, the work of women is perennially downgraded and, and, and disregarded. Um, and then there is the fourth sector, which is the commons. And the thing about the household and the commons is that they were once the dominant sector, sectors of, of, of the economy. But it is a gradual sort of erosion by both state and market which has reduced them to such an extent... You know, even though they still are significant, that, uh, and the household in particular, that we don't even see them. And economists in particular seem to be very bad at seeing those sectors of the economy. But the commons, this is the interesting thing as far as community is concerned. The commons is based around three things. First of all, a resource, which is owned and managed by the second element, a particular community of people. It's not the same as an open access regime, like the ocean fisheries, for instance, where anyone can go in and just smash and grab what they want. And the whole tragedy of the Commons argument was based on an entirely mistaken premise that Garrett Hardin, who promoted this, promoted this argument, couldn't tell the difference between an open access system and a common system. A common system is where you have a resource specifically controlled by a community, which then brings in the third element which are the rules and negotiations which govern the disposal or the use 
of that resource. When I say disposal, that's not quite the, th the right thing to say because it's inalienable. It cannot be sold, it cannot be given away. Um, of course, that often happens because it's grabbed, it's seized through the process of the enclosure of the commons, which um, extends all the way from the land enclosures in Britain hundreds of years ago and still today to the erosion of net neutrality taking place um, within the Trump, uh, Trump administration at the moment. But the commons... Um, where the, the community is strong enough to defend it is inalienable and it is, in its true form, a non-capitalist system. It does not seek to accumulate capital, it does not seek to make profit. What it seeks to do on a shared and equitable basis is to distribute the benefits from the use of that resource to, um, its, its, uh, the, to its members in order to sustain their well-being and their prosperity. And the classic example of a commons which I believe we can reclaim is the land. Now, the land was not made by anyone. It was not invented by anyone. And yet there are certain people who claim exclusive rights not only to use this land, but to monopolise this land and to charge the rest of us, phenomenally so if you live in London, to um, make any use of that land through living on top of it in a house or a flat or even a cardboard box. Um, you, well, a garden shed, certainly. You get charged a phenomenal amount of money just because they own the land or claim to own the land and you do not. And you might work every hour that God gives in order to pay the rent so that they don't have to work at all. One of the very interesting aspects of the neoliberal era is that it was supposed to create this enterprise economy. It's actually created a rentier economy. There's an OECD study which shows um, a shift of 0.3% a year, so 3% per decade, um, from um, the labour share of income to the capital share of income. And basically, and this is throughout the neoliberal era, we've seen this massive shift away from the money that you get from hard work and enterprise, which neoliberalism was supposed to be all about, towards the money that you get from rent, because that has been deregulated and neoliberalism is all about deregulation. Um, and so, and of course, the reduction of taxes and, you know, we're massively undertaxed. Um, so let, let's, let's take the land. So you, you have, you know, you, you are there as your sort of group of streets, your community and whatever part of London or wherever else you might live, and you're all paying phenomenal amounts of rent to various landowners, landlords, uh, who believe they have the, the right to charge that and to pay very little tax on that rent that they might make. And you have, as a result, almost no power over what goes on, on in, 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 in that housing stock and on the land that surrounds you. And if some big new property developer comes and says, right, I want to build some... Um, great big phallic monument um, in which I'm going to uh, put the most expensive flats ever sold. And uh, it's all for your benefit, of course, because we're, 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 we're regenerating the neighbourhood and we're going to regenerate you out of the neighbourhood. <laughs> There's very little you can do about it, especially with councils so weak to, to resist these people nowadays. So um, um, what you can start to do is to say, right, how do we recreate a commons in these apparently highly unfavourable circumstances? Well, so one thing we do to begin with is to charge a great big rate of land value tax. And the, the, the highly valuable property 
um, gets charged a big land value tax. You can't escape it because while you can move your company into the Cayman Islands, you cannot move your land into the Cayman Islands. So you have to pay it or you forfeit the land. And some of that tax, I believe, should go to government. Some of it should go to local authorities to pay for basic services. But the residue should go to a commons trust set up by the community and managed by the community. So this is the first of the commons that you create. And the commons in this case is the commons of a, a, a lump of money which that trust is receiving every year. Now you could set up a citizen's wealth fund of the kind that um, Angela Cumin or, or Stuart Lansley suggest. Um, and so you, you build up a steady pot which then can perhaps pay out a local basic income to, to, to the members of the community. Or you could use that money to start creating public luxury, to build amenities of the kind that ca the council says it doesn't have money to pay for. So they might be sports centres, or they might be youth clubs, or they might be libraries, or there might be swimming pools, or toilets, public toilets. Who remembers those? <laughs> um, and um, and, and, um, and you, know, you can use it to create public wealth within your community. If you couple this with one or two other measures, like a community right to buy. Now, the interesting thing about land tax, among, land value tax, among other things, is it generally suppresses land values. Land becomes quite a lot cheaper. Houses become quite a lot cheaper. If you have a right to buy when some land comes on, onto the market, like the community right to buy in Scotland, which mostly applies to rural land, but there's absolutely no reason why it shouldn't apply equally to urban land, um, then your, the Commons Trust, which is now accumulating a fair amount of money from the residue of land value taxation, could say, OK, we're going to buy some of the land when it comes up for sale. And we're going to decide, as the property developers, what use that land might best be put to. Of course, we still have to apply for planning permission, but in this case, we're on the front foot, not on the back foot, as we are when we're confronting the commercial property developers. If you also have rights of site assembly, which might um, involve some compulsory purchase agreements where you've got a, a land banker just sitting, uh, you know, volume housing developer or non-housing developer or some sort of oligarch just sitting on a, a patch of land and just scooping the value as it goes up and up, um, you might have some compulsory purchase powers for that community. You've got the land assembly powers, which would allow it to pull together a site um, uh, you'd give it powers to commission infrastructure as well, and suddenly you see, oh, the community could build an estate to meet local housing need. And not only build that estate, but design that estate. In fact, it could bring in the prospective buyers and tenants and people on the social housing list to design the whole estate around their needs and design their own homes on that estate. And they have to do it in cooperation with each other. So even before anyone moves on to that estate, they have to create community. And that land then becomes a commons, run by the commons trust, which must represent the interests of all its members equally um, uh, on a shared and equitable basis. It will receive rent, and that rent then can go into the Citizens' Wealth Fund or into further land acquisition and the rest of it. And straight away, what you find you've done is to create a system which puts the community at the heart of the economy, gives the community, unlike sort of Margaret Thatcher's care in the community or David Cameron's big society where it's sort of, here you go, here's a whole lot of responsibilities for you. Oh, and by the way, here's a shove over the cliff while you're at it. Um, we're not giving you any power, we're not giving you any money, but you could just 
do something with that library, and I, I don't want to... You know, that, that, that's the approach. In this case, you give the power, you give the wealth back to the community. Don't give it. The community is allowed to reclaim that which was once ours before enclosure took it from us. And in doing so, you create a community that is real, a community that is there indeed as well as in name. And I believe, and certainly the experience of... Um, the, the participatory culture and thick networking that we're seeing around the world reinforces this, that when community achieves that kind of strength, it tends to become a generous and inclusive community. Hannah Arendt pointed out that fascism arises from the dust and powder of atomized societies, where people don't have a sense of belonging, they don't have a sense of roots, they don't have a sense of, of knowing who they are and who they are in relation to the people around them, and then they're just looking for belonging, they're looking for something to attach themselves to, and the first bucket on a broomstick which pops up in front of them and says, I will solve all your problems, however unrealistic that might be, primarily by crushing those other people, they will attach themselves to, because we need attachment. And in an age of alienation that we face today once more, what we need is a politics of belonging. And I've suggested one of the means, and there are many, many others, but one of the means by which we start to achieve that. But it's not just from the community level that we must, um, um, that, that we must address this, because we also need a, a hospitable environment in which this change can take place. And for that, we require regime change. Democratically enacted, of course. Um, and you know, in, until fairly recently, that looked, well, difficult to say the least. We just seemed to be stuck with Tina, with uh, there is no alternative. You know, it was as if Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and Gordon Brown set out to prove Margaret Thatcher right, that there was no way out, that you are stuck with this model and, and whoever you vote for, you are going to get it. Well, hasn't that changed? And where it began to change most dramatically was in the Bernie Sanders campaign for the Democratic nomination. And we saw something quite remarkable take place there because Sanders started off at the beginning of the nomination process with 3% name recognition. That's not a great place for a political candidate trying to become president to start off with. The other um, issue he started off with was about $3. He just had no money. You know, while, while Clinton was already just amassing this vast Wall Street war chest, he had nothing. And so he sat down with his people and said, well, what are we going to do? And they said, well, the only thing we have got is volunteers, so let's use them as we can. And they began experimenting. I mean, basically, the Sanders campaign was a gigantic experiment, a, a live experiment, a pretty lean and live experiment because there wasn't any money. And while um, Hillary Clinton was amassing big dollars and big data and a big staff, the Sanders campaign began to do something which is now called big organising. And it took them a long time to crack the model, to sort of work out how best to do it. And it's still in its infancy. And they worked it out about four weeks before the end of the nomination process. And the frustrating thing is sort of reading the accounts of, of the Sanders organisers, such as um, Rules for Revolutionaries, written by Becky Bond and Zach Exley. If they'd had four more weeks, they would have done it. There's no question about it. They would have swept it, because the speed of acceleration which they were beginning to reach was such that 
Basically, they would have swept the nomination and then Trump wouldn't have stood a chance. Because by the time they got to the end of the nomination campaign, they had recruited 100,000 volunteers who had run, without a single dollar being paid, 100,000 events and had spoken directly to 75 million Americans. Another four weeks and they believe they would have spoken to every accessible adult in the United States. And they would have changed everything. As, as it's hard to see how anyone could have resisted that amazing <coughs> onslaught of brilliant, generally young people being real with other Americans. And, uh, but, you know, amazing things were learnt from that campaign. And so when Theresa May um, and announced the election over here and everyone said, oh, it's going to be a conservative landslide and the entire Guardian said it's going to be a conservative landslide, <laughs> um, not to mention any names. And, um, <laughs> and it was... Um, and, and, you know, it was just doom and gloom all round. I made a video saying, look, I, I read this book. Um, I've seen how they did it with the Sanders campaign. If, if, if the Corbyn campaign adopts this big organising model, oh, which I should explain, by the way, I haven't even explained what it is. It's basically where instead of using staff, and instead of hiring a big staff, you have a minimal, tiny core staff, which basically devises strategy, and then all the other jobs, which would normally be reserved for staff, are handed to volunteers. And those volunteers then train other volunteers, and those volunteers train other volunteers. It's, there's no guarantee this is going to work, because for big organising to work, you need a big offer. Uh, Ed Miliband tried to do big organising. He brought in Arnie Graf from the, from the US. He sort of tried to set up this community organising network. It just died the death. It didn't go anywhere at all. And the, res and the reason for that was there wasn't any discernible offer at all in the policy program that he was putting forward. Their zero-based review, which was the most apt name for a document ever produced, <laughs> was basically saying, we're going to stick to Tory spending targets, we're going to maintain um, that focus on the deficit until it has been entirely... Oh, the deficit, do you remember that? <laughs> remember how that used to obsess everyone right across the political spectrum and how Labour were induced to believe it was the most important issue ever in politics? and that they had to clear it. Talk about adopting the framing of your opponents. Yeah, so anyway, and they just bought all that, and then the manifesto was the longest till receipt in history, and he said, but we're going to inspire a whole lot of bright young people to be our volunteer army. And people just said, sod off you are. Why should we work for that? That's not giving us anything. You need the big offer to make sense of big organising. And that's what Sanders offered. And that's what the Corbyn campaign was offering. Anyway, so I made this video for The Guardian in sort of um, week two of the election campaign where it was, Labour was on 26% um, in the polling. Uh, there was, uh, it was just looked like a total wipeout was coming their way. And I said, if they adopt these techniques, Labour stands a chance. God, I mean, I, you, know, you should never read the below the line of anyone's article ever, as I find, find repeatedly to my cost because I can't help it. But in this case, the level of abuse and mockery and vituperation was just off the scale. You know, I'm not quite used to this stuff, but this was, whoa! You know, the, the, the kind comments, the gentle comments, you're a complete nutcase living in cloud cuckoo land, you know, and that's where it began. Well, we saw what happened. They brought over. The organisers, not from my urging, you know, I didn't know, but they were already in, intending to do this. They brought over Sanders' organisers 
And they applied those techniques through momentum and through the grassroots um, base of the Labour Party, and, well, we all saw what happened. They went from 26% to 40%, and they deprived the Conservatives of an overall majority. It's one of the biggest surprises in the entire political history of the democratic world. It's an extraordinary thing that happened. Sure, they didn't quite win, but again, another two weeks, <laughs> they were on that trajectory. And basically, the model is being refined and refined, and now... The uh, Momentum model is being re-exported to the US because Momentum has learned all sorts of things which uh, were new and we're just building, you know, between different groups around the world, this model is being built and built and developed and developed. And it is my belief that coming at this issue from both ends, from the community end, from the regime change end at the time, same time, using big organising coupled with the grand narrative arc which shows us where we stand on earth, which shows us where we can go, which gives us a grander vision of a better world and above all rekindles the political imagination, we become unstoppable. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, I just, uh, we've got a, a period of time now for questions and discussion. Um, just, just a couple of things about it. When I call you, can you wait for the microphone? And can you say who you are and where you're from? And also our speakers ask that we proceed on the basis that we first take a question from a woman, then a man, and so on through the, um, through the uh, question session. So can I start by asking for... A question from a woman. I'll start just taking one, but if we get with a lot, I might start taking them in groups, I think, if you don't mind. Sure. So, um, please, can we have a first question? Anybody who would like question to... Oh, we've got a woman over here. So, could you just, just wait for the microphone just, and please say who you are and where you're from. This, this woman with the black jacket. Just wave your hand around. Yep. Hi, um, that was really amazing. Thank you. Um, my name is Lucy. I'm from New York City. And um, hold, hold what you said about... Hmm? Can you hold the mic a bit closer to your... Okay, Thank you hear you. me yeah. now? Okay. Um, I'm from New York City. And one of the things that you talk about is community building. Um, what do you suggest for community building in such a big metropolitan city like New York or London, where people are so busy with modern life and their work and they were so alienated from their um, neighbors and community. How do you suggest community building under such circumstances? Thank you. Um, a, a very pertinent question. Well, there's a couple of really exciting models, I, I think, that we can begin to deploy. And one of them I mentioned briefly, which is the participatory budgeting model. And this was pioneered in the Brazilian city of Porto Alegre about 20 years ago. Um, and basically what it does is to say the infrastructure budget will now be controlled by the people. There'll be a budget council which will help sort of identify the poorest areas and allocate money accordingly. But otherwise, you are going to decide how this money is going to be spent. And um, 50,000 people every year take, play, take part in this and, and govern that budget. And it has been so successful in basically destroying corruption, destroying clientelism, destroying port barrel projects, and channeling the money to where it is needed rather than to where a particular powerful interest group might want it, that people are actually now lobbying to have their taxes raised. 
Seriously, this is what's happening. It's, it's just because people can see the point. They can see the point of public investment. The child mortality rate has fallen through the floor. The, the, the sanitation has gone through the roof. Does sanitation go? That's, does, that doesn't sound quite right, does it? You don't really want your sanitation going through the roof. But, uh, anyway, it's got much better. It's got much better. Um, uh, water quality increased, much better schools, much better hospitals, much better nursery centres, daycare, all the rest of it. It's been transformed the city. And the more that works, the more people become involved and the more there's that sense of ownership. And now in New York, in New York City, um, there's very limited so far. Participatory budgeting process has begun. It's only so 1% of the budget so far. But I see a huge potential for getting that bigger and bigger, to, uh, beginning to affect not just the infrastructure budget, but some of the other aspects of the municipal budget, um, with much better subsidiarity, the devolution of decision-making to the greatest extent possible to the smallest political unit, um, then you can see more and more bits of the budget that we might be able to control. Participatory budgeting, I think, is absolutely crucial to building community in cities. But the other thing is participatory politics, and the place which has really cracked this is Reykjavik. Um, and there's an extraordinary thing going on there. And this was a pirate party which, which kicked this stuff off, um, believe it or not. And it's been highly successful. And basically, they say, right, we, you know, we are not going to determine policy from the, um, uh, fr 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 the centre outwards. We're going to get you to propose the policies which we're going, uh, we going to adopt. And so every month, um, uh, people in Reykjavik send in their suggestions for what they want the, the council to do. And what makes it work is that every single one of those people gets a response within a few days, whether the policy is being taken forward to the next level or whether it's been outright rejected. And people don't mind the rejections as long as they're told, A, that it is being rejected, and B, why it is being rejected, why it has not been accepted. And, you know, often there's a very good reason for saying we can't, you know, much as, uh, thank you for this, but we can't actually adopt it. And what that's created is this extraordinary buy-in where two-thirds of the population of Reykjavik is now involved in this process of making suggestions and then helping to sort of winnow those suggestions and vote on them and the rest of it. And again, it has created this extraordinary sense of participation across the city. Now, what is it, half a million or something in Reykjavik? You know, it's not as big as New York City, it's not as big as London, but there's absolutely no reason why you can't scale up that model to virtually any size of city. Um, but also, you know, you're not just doing it city-wide. You, you're building community at the borough level or even at the sub-borough level where you can then create a commons and you can then create a commons trust and that sense of mutuality and ownership which then builds the politics of belonging. Okay, so can we have, I'll, I'll, I'll take a question down here and then I'll come up there next. Um, so this, this gentleman with the white shirt, please just again wait for the microphone. Um, yeah, I was quite inspired by what you had to say about big organisation and everything like that. But, I mean, what's to stop our political opponents from doing exactly the same? I mean, you know, in America, <clears throat> whether we like it or not, you know, make America great again was a very comprehensible story which sort of inspired a sort of a populist movement in the same way that take back control did in the referendum so without wanting to be the skunk at the picnic you know what's to stop you know our opponents doing exactly the same with the same level of success it, it's not just not necessarily just going to be a progressive mm -hmm. tactic is it oh believe it they're going to be studying this they're going to be studying it very closely indeed and in fact some of the 
tactics now used in big organising were pioneered by the Tea Party on the other side. There's going to be an arms race on this stuff. But the great thing, the, the thing which, particularly for the um, uh, party political organising, the advantage at the, um, let's call it, um, generous inclusive end of the political spectrum has is, is that you are actually likely to be able to attract more people. You know, the other side you know, is very good at getting the big money and can create a lot of noise, generally with relatively small numbers of people, which the Tea Party movement, which is the biggest thing towards big organising that the less generous and inclusive end of the political spectrum um, has so far pulled off. It's actually very small numbers by comparison to the Sanders organising. And to sort of... To, to build those numbers, they need an awful lot of billions of dollars because basically, you know, Americans for Prosperity, which um, set up the Tea Party movement, you know, it's supposed to be this spontaneous grassroots movement. It's actually a classic example of astroturfing, fake grassroots. Incidentally, astroturf, <laughs> a, a, astroturf um, is, is trademarked by Monsanto, which is a specialist in astroturfing political <laughs> campaigns. So it, it's highly appropriate. Um, the... Um, um, so, um, um, you know, the Tea Party is basically an astroturfing campaign with a bit of genuine grassroots involvement in it as well. You need to spend an awful lot of money if you're to achieve anything like the scale that Sanders achieved even, you know, in that sort of short period of experimentation. Um, you know, maybe you can spend that money. Maybe, you know, it, it can work. But I think, you know, one of the amazing things that the Sanders campaign and the Corbyn campaign had was the sense that these are real people talking to you. These volunteers, this sort of volunteer insurgency, is composed of people who um, are like you. They're living in your own community. They're, they're, they're facing the same circumstances as you are. You know, they're not people who've been bussed in on the whole. You know, obviously, there was some movement between constituencies because of our first-past-the-post system, so it made sense to go to the marginals. But, you know, the, the core of, of, of um, the demand for change was often with local people who you might even have known. Whereas the Tea Party modelling was very different, they had to move people around the country because they didn't have that core. Of course, they will try to adopt this tactic. And of course, we ha you know, if we want a different politics, we have to keep ahead of that tactic. And of course, they'll be looking, oh, narratives, you know, let's, let's have a grand narrative. Well, ours is going to be better than theirs. You know, and that basically is all we've got. You know, it's just we have to do it better than they can do it. And that's how politics works. Okay, um, can we have this woman here with the red hat? Thank you very much. Um, my name's Khadija um, and I work at Save the Children International. Um, um, I, very, I very much enjoyed your talk um, and the idea of kind of community-based organising. Um, my question is around how do you prevent dominant groups from um, setting the rules and kind of taking over these community organizations. dominant groups from what was that? Setting the rules for these kind of community organizations um, and then kind of excluding minority groups. Um, and how do they work with existing um, community organizations that often kind of work desperately to each other? Thank you. Thank you. No, I, I mean, these are all excellent questions and exactly the sort of things we need to be discussing. There is always a danger. Look, in any group of people, you know, in an anarchist household, there's always a danger that someone's going to dominate and not do the washing up. You know, it's, 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 um, and, and so it's something uh, towards which we have to be perpetually vigilant. Um, now, you know, there are plenty of commons around the world um, which have had, in some cases, thousands of years of experience. I mean, I've worked with indigenous people on three continents and seen 
the incredibly nuanced and clever and subtle ways in which they manage their commons to ensure that everyone is represented. It doesn't mean that everyone is necessarily participating, and often you get a family representative. Sometimes they're gerontocratic, um, quite often they're patriarchal, so there, there are issues there. And you know, th those are issues that we have not to reproduce. We have to make sure that our, our commons are genuinely representative. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and there are, again, good examples of genuinely representative commons. Uh, and Eleanor Ostrom did a lot of great work in studying different common systems and seeing the ones which work best, seeing their levels of representation, inclusion, and the rest of it. And there are great models that we can choose from. But, you know, this isn't a, a sort of simple formula where I can say, right, this times this times this equals that, and there you are, you're going to sort, sort it out. It's going to be constant negotiation, because this is what we are. We're sort of creatures of discussion and collaboration and narrative and negotiation, and, and we're going to have to do some of this stuff on the hoof, but we're going to be able to learn from other people in doing so. But the really interesting thing is, is this, and there's some very interesting work by the Common Cause Foundation drawing on the work of social psychologists like Shalom Schwartz and Tim Kasser um, with the, uh, the whole value spectrum between your intrinsic values and extrinsic values. And the intrinsic values which are dominant in, in most of us are the values of self-acceptance, empathy, altruism, benevolence, community spirit. The uh, extrinsic values are Donald Trump values, um, uh, self-enhancement, uh, money, power, status, image. Um, and, um, and we all have a bit of both in us, but in most people, the intrinsic values are dominant. But the political environment and social environment in which you find yourself strongly influences the balance of those values. And if you're in a situation where um, you uh, are basically encouraged to fight like stray dogs over a dustbin and, um, and it's a devil take the hindmost and to keep mixing the metaphor, those who, um, uh, uh, who, who don't get to the top are allowed to fall through the cracks, etc. Um, you end up with much harsher values. And, and, and there's a lot of science behind this showing how your values move, shift towards the extrinsic end. If, on the other hand, you're in a situation where there's a sense of being heard, of being cared for, of being engaged with, of, of, of belonging, your values shift very sharply towards the intrinsic end, and you're much more open to other people. Your values become more open, more benevolent. You want to help, you want to engage, you want to make a contribution, you want to be useful. Um, and it's, it strikes me that that circumstance, which is created, I believe, by the politics of belonging, is very beneficial towards democracy, both at the local level and at the national level. And it creates a seedbed in which you can have a far better participation and engagement and inclusivity than you might otherwise have. So it's not a complete answer to your question, but I think there's some elements there. Okay. Um, could we have this gentleman here with the grey shirt? Hi, uh, my name's Shabab. I'm from London. Um, thank you for your talk. Really inspiring. Um, I'm in the middle of building a company with some friends. Uh, our main goal is to have a positive impact on society. So I was wondering, if you were building your own company right now, what kind of initiatives, traditions, structures would you implement 
to both uh, to increase community both internally and externally. Oh right, well that's that's another really interesting question. You kind of got me stumped there. <laughs> what 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 kind of business? Well, well no, t t can you tell us a bit about what you what, what you envisage? Yeah. This is a way of, of me not answering a question like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, what what we're trying to do, or yeah, I mean, yeah. so I don't know if you if people here are familiar with hemp. Um, we take hemp, we create uh, all natural food and beverages. That's our first sort of uh, project at the moment. So we're trying to be sustainable, all natural sort of food and beverage products. So, mm, I mean, great. trying to help. Yeah, like lovely. That. No, well, I, I mean, one of the things that you know, we see happening in places like Todmorden or Rotterdam or, um, uh, for that matter, Zaragoza or many other places where we've seen a great proliferation of community projects and community engagement is the recycling of money through and through and through the community. You know, it's basically... As to the greatest extent possible, that money stays within the community. There's a very interesting um, thing which the um, uh, Flemish city of Ghent has just done, which is to commission a commons transition plan. This is, you know, we're beginning to see that the cracks in the wall appear here. This is exciting stuff. And, and, and the, the consultants of the commission are basically saying, right, get as many of your... Um, local ingredients for, uh, you know, because they, they talk about food as being very important, your local ingredients from your local farmland and um, get as much of the processing of that done within the own, your own community and employ as many people as you possibly can from within the community and you just keep that um, wealth circulating um, and, and you basically create a situation where you could switch to a local currency without actually even noticing because, because the wealth is staying so well within the community. So, again, just a partial answer to your question, but you know, it sounds like you might be going there already. Cool. Thank you. Okay, uh, this lady here with the blue shirt, just it's coming around. Hi. Um, is it on? Yep, we can um, keep it close. Talk. Um, yes, my work is concerned with complex global supply chains and slavery within those supply mm. chains. So how do you apply some of your thinking, particularly in terms of the empathy and our altruism and so on, to people who are not actually in our cities, even in our countries, but people whose labour, for example, we are engaged with, but who are totally you know, unknown in all respects to us? Sure. Look, I would hate to suggest that there's any automaticity in this, that sort of by doing the sort of things I'm talking about, we instantly become kind to everyone on Earth and that our trading relations immediately and automatically and magically improve. The work of people like yourself is still going to be essential. You know, we, we, we're still going to need people who are drawing our attention to the distant impacts of what we do because, you know, one of the aspects of our community feeling is we tend to be much more focused on what's close to us than on what's a long, long way away from us. But my hope is that you know, creating a seedbed for a more generous and inclusive politics in which our better natures come to the fore, in which we begin to see ourselves as the amazing creatures that we really are and unlock that potential within ourselves to be those generous, community-spirited, empathetic altruistic, engaged people, that work like yours becomes easier. It's, it's not a magic formula, but you know, we, we can switch on more easily. We don't, we're less likely to find ourselves confronted by a wall of indifference and hostility 
whenever we try to engage people with the question of ethical behaviour that affects people other than those we can immediately see, which you know, is the experience of all of us at the moment. It's just so hard. In the, you know, and even, I mean, there was one extraordinary survey a couple of years ago which um, showed that welfare recipients were identifying welfare recipients as scroungers. <laughs> and they're basically, you know, being so imbued with the Daily Mail view of the world that it was like, so those people taking money from the state are scroungers. And the other people were pointing at them and saying, those, you know, it was just this perfect circle of finger-pointing because we're just induced to see everyone else as a threat and everyone else as the other and everyone else is out to take something from us because that's the harsh and hostile world into which we've been thrown. You make that a kind and caring and, and engaged world where you are heard. And when you are heard, you too start to listen. Okay, um, this gentleman here with the grey jacket, just wait for the... Uh, hang on, you just have to wait for the microphone. Coming back to you. Uh, there it is. Sorry. Other way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Am I holding it correctly? Good. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for your wonderful and entertaining narrative. More or less what I expected. Um, <laughs> oh, was, was that, was that no question about it. But where are the remedies? Where are the remedies? I am an optimistic pessimist. I do believe that there is a grand narrative waiting out there to be readopted, and that is to grab the ways in which the natural order shapes society and the rules and, and the norms of nature itself which shapes the land, controls the land, and set the scene for human habitation. The big issue, I think, that's got uh, overtaken by the, the plethora of issues is environmental loss and degradation, mm. which has been a result, of course, of the, the commercial pressures of the past century or more. Uh, but I believe, too, that by adopting a format which goes back a century and more uh, at the understanding of nature uh, at a very, very detailed level, indeed, I'm amazed at how much research was done 100 and 150 years ago by scientists of that time. So the understandings of the workings of nature... Would you mind um, just... just um, Closing the thought. If we look to the natural order as a means not only of restoring the environment, but of bringing with it a format for restitution of a much more democratic and cooperative um, system. Thank you. Okay, so thank it's a you. systemic approach. Um, so, so, so one way of, of approaching this, if, if I've understood you correctly, is... is you know, that we can look to nature to give us some guidance as to some of the ways in which we might live. And one um, tremendously fruitful way of doing this is through what's called regenerative design or, or the circular economy, where, where you say, look, 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 look at what nature does with resources. You know, a tree falls in the forest, 
whether you see it or not. Um, a, a tree falls in the forest, um, it rots, its nutrients get taken up by other plants, which get eaten by animals, which then get to recycle those nutrients in different ways. And basically everything gets reused. Nothing goes to waste. Um, and one element, uh, the, the waste products of one organism are the food for another organism. And there's some very exciting new thinking on industrial design, which seeks to mimic that way of, of using resources. Um, and, um, and through that regenerative design, through the sort of cradle-to-grave circular economy, um, constantly feeding that back, there's a great deal of amazing work that we can do in terms of mimicking nature. And as far as the restoration of the natural world itself is concerned, there too, we need to, to be highly active. It is not enough just to try to arrest the damage, not least because we have to restore that thing which is most important and, and as rare as any of the species we're talking about when it comes to environmentalism, which is hope. We need a positive propositional environmental vision just as we do a political and economic vision, and I believe they can tie together. And my own angle on that, my own particular interest within sort of propositional environmentalism is rewilding, the mass restoration of damaged ecosystems, and there's tremendous scope to do that. Uh, uh, sorry, we'll have to move on to the next question. Thank you. Right, I'm just going to go up here now. Um, so, yes, uh, this lady here, please. Um, hi, my name is Ramona, and I wanted to ask a question about your idea of regime change, specifically in this country. Um, a member of the Scottish Parliament, who I quite admire once, made the differentiation between people who are apathetic to politics and people that have been alienated from it. For example, like people that just don't believe their voices matter, the fact we haven't got a good political education and that first past the post genuinely means that some of that's true. Yeah. And like th these are sort of people that aren't here now listening to you, who aren't reading your articles. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, find that, I'll find that person. <laughs> I'll have some words. I was just wondering if you had any suggestions for like get, getting these people that are really sort of out of the fold to, to mm. believe or even know about this this big offer and to believe that they can actually help to mm. make it you know achieve it. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, do, do you remember just like three years ago, when everyone say, "Oh, the youth of today are so apathetic. They're not interested in politics. They're just totally switched off." And, you know, you, you sort of try all these different techniques and you just can't involve them. My God, look at what's happening now. It's just incredible. The speed of the turnaround. I was at the World Transformed in, in Brighton, um, what was it, 10 days ago or something. And it was just like this, you know, uh, not only was there this incredible insurgency taking place, driven mostly by young people, but the whole thing had been run by volunteers. No one was being paid at all, and it was running like clockwork. It was just this fantastic, multifaceted event that was taking place there. And, and no one could have predicted this who you know, was unaware of the, um, the, the way in which a big offer transforms politics. Now, of course, you're absolutely right. There are all sorts of people who weren't there, who aren't, haven't joined a political party, who aren't mobilising, who aren't trying to change the world. But it, you will never engage everyone. And what tends to happen is that you get a committed core who then, in a sort of concentric fashion, begin to pull other people in and persuade them and engage them with the most powerful medium ever invented, word of mouth, 
You know, that is the thing which works. It is the alternative media which works better than any other. It always has and it always will. Um, and then they begin to talk to their own friends and parents and cousins and colleagues and things slowly shift. And suddenly you wake up one morning and the status quo has changed. And one of the peculiar characteristics of human beings is that we tend to side with the status quo, whatever it might be. Yeah, if you're living in a fascist regime, you side with the status quo. If you're living in a co communist dictatorship, you side with the status quo. If you're living in a social, you know, etc. You just go with the flow. That's what most people tend to do. There'll always be a sort of core of people trying to hold out, but by and large, people will go with the flow. And suddenly, the status quo will change, the common sense will change, and people will fall into line without even knowing that they've done so. So, you know, we're not going to get everyone politically active. God, what a raucous world this would be if we did. <laughs> it might be a wonderful world, but it would be pretty noisy. Um, but what we can do is, is create a sort of metaphysical mutation, as uh, Michel Huelbeck would, 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 would call it, where there's a sudden shift in the way we perceive ourselves and perceive the world around us. And that shift, what I see it doing, is not changing human nature, but revealing human nature, revealing us for the amazing creatures that we really are. And I believe there's a sort of peeling off of layers which takes place until the heart of us, this good nature, this kindness, this altruism, this empathy, which is in almost all of us and is just ready to be ignited, is then revealed. Okay. Um, Let's see, I haven't taken anybody over here, so I'm just going to go to this, uh, the man with the beard over there, please. Sorry? Uh, thanks for your talk, George, it's wonderful. Um, I think some of this participation that you talk about um, seems to, you suggest, it might be spontaneous, or I think it's kind of what that lady asked before. Um, Spontaneous with some discussion between different countries, Sanders and Corbyn campaign. But ultimately, from a, do you think that's a good thing that it's kind of more spontaneous? Or do you think there should be some policy changes, i.e. through education, to how to organize? Um, or the, or not, not a set organized way, but you know, just to look at ways of organizing and um, from a policy well, perspective. I, 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 if I created the impression it was spontaneous, entirely spontaneous, then I, I, I misled you because it's, it's a hybrid model where you've got, you, you retain your small core of staff, you know, generally on a pretty limited budget, and they do set strategy and they retain a certain degree of control about what is done, you know, and they sort of, you train your initial group of, of volunteers to be able to carry out certain functions and then they train the next lot to carry out those same functions. And so it's set centrally. But basically what the Sanders organisers found was that about the only thing you couldn't devolve to volunteers was the national press operation. Where, you know, someone says, oh yeah, well I think, yeah, I think we just pull down the banks. That's the way to do it, you know. You can see yourself getting into a lot of trouble um, if, if you don't keep a very tight hold of that. But everything else, you set the broad strategy so it's not like you're just letting people do whatever they want under your name, but you say, right, here, here's the basic strategy, here are some of the specific techniques to use. You can use your own creativity in interpreting some of that so that you can sort of discover more effective ways of doing it. And this is sort of part of the experimental nature of it, 
in that some of those volunteers were feeding back and saying, look, I found a much better way of doing this. I've got this new app, which I've just designed, or I've found this way of getting volunteers to sign up on the spot by forming a queue in the corner of the room or whatever it might be. And there was this constant feedback coming in where they could refine and refine the model in the light of volunteers' experience and then feed that back out and say, OK, the tactics have slightly changed. We're going to do it this way now because this works better. So, so the sort of spontaneity was in the gathering of the volunteers, in the sort of people spontaneously saying, I want to join this and signing themselves up. But there was actually sort of quite a degree of control from the centre as to what those volunteers were doing. But it was far more than the usual role for volunteers, which is basically stuffing envelopes and sure. doing tick lists and stuff like this. This was sort of real big, extremely useful tasks, which were exciting, and you did them alongside other people. No one ever worked alone, because that's sort of so much better for believing, sort of feeling that you're engaged and involved in it all. Um, but then at, at, at the, the same time, you know, there was a certain amount of scripting of, of what you were doing. And also about government policy to, for education or something like that. Well, well, I mean, ed education of people in politics and uh, being more engaged citizens, is that what... For, for, for the general public, for instance, <coughs> for instance. Oh, I, I see. Well, well, I mean, of course, you know, I mean, in this, both these cases, we're talking about parties which hadn't yet formed a government. So, um, so you know, we, it would be quite an ask to get the Tories to um, explain um, Labour participatory volunteering to, to the population as a whole. But... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's important not to mix party politics with the, the sort of um, with, with, with governmental politics when it comes to issues like education. You know, I think the two should be as separate as they possibly can be. But there is definitely a role through the alternative media for getting the message out about how we're doing this and how you can play a part. And that role has been exploited magnificently, you know, by Navara Media over here, for example, or Double Down News, which I've been doing quite a lot of work with. I mean, there's you know, lots of great alternative news organisations which are now spreading the word about how we can do this. OK, well, I fear we're at the end of our time. Um, we've heard a, a number of extremely uh, large and interesting claims um, I think the talk started by suggesting that even when you face what seems to be a wall with no way through, there's always a crack to be found. And our speaker's gone on to explain that, in his opinion, it's grand narratives that change the world. And he's, he's put forward an argument about a particular narrative, which he thinks that we all should be thinking about, one about rebuilding community and a politics of belonging. Now, I think there's a number of ways we might... Um, continue to discuss this if that's what we want to do. One way would be to go and read um, George's book and he's going to be sitting here if you want to come and um, get it signed afterwards. But another thing that I think he would be pleased if you did um, is just to talk to each other because after all we had many questions here today which were not asked and not answered. So do feel free to sit and, and continue to discuss it amongst yourselves. But before you do either of those things, can you join me again in thanking our speaker, George Bondiak.